It was around 11 a.m. on a crisp, sunny morning uh, outside the Intercontinental Hotel on Park Lane when the handcuffs were tightened around my wrists. I'd arrived at the hotel that morning alongside eight activists, some I knew by name, and others I recognized from previous Extinction Rebellion meetings. We were there to disrupt a conference called International Petroleum Week, in which all of the biggest names in the gas and oil industry meet to rub shoulders and discuss the future of their industry. The conference runs four days in total, but on this particular day, they were meeting to discuss new exploration opportunities in West Africa. Knowing that we currently have enough oil reserves to burn the planet up four times over, and that we're in the midst of a climate crisis, this seemed somewhat ludicrous to me, and so I decided to attend the conference myself. When we met at Green Park Station that morning, I have to be honest and say I really wasn't sure what my role would be that morning. I thought at the very least I might just be there to support, take a photograph and then go back to my normal life. As we approached the hotel, the eight activists separated, each walking to a different door and in one swift movement applying glue to their hands before placing it against the glass. I watched as chaos ensued and the security guards rushed over. They panicked, shouted, pushed, and in one case, sat on one of the activists, meaning that we failed to secure the doors. As I watched, this feeling rose up inside me, a feeling of sadness, of anxiety, of admiration, and solidarity. And it started in my toes, and it worked its way up my entire body before commanding me to act. And so, in the midst of the chaos, I walked up to one of the central doors and pathetically placed my hand against it. As the security guards realized, or perhaps assumed, that we were all stuck, things calmed down, and they called the police. And it was, it was at this point that I took a moment to look around me. My hand was placed against one of six main doors in the central entrance, and on my left was a man who I now know to be Yanai, who trained as a barrister in New Zealand before moving to the UK to become a Buddhist teacher. On my right, Sam, a recent Cambridge graduate, an aspiring actor and writer who I knew to be one of the leading thinkers inside Extinction Rebellion. Next to him, Kathy, mum of two, also a Cambridge graduate. She spent years running a charity that puts music performances on in prisons. Next to her, Serena, a retired television producer who I recognized from previous actions. And at the end, with her small frame and headband holding back her white hair, Trudy, a retired organic gardener. The other activists had selected doors around the hotel and were out of my eyesight. What I saw when I looked at these people was courage, but also fear. For most of us, this was our first time ever stepping across the boundaries of the law, and we were terrified. It was Yanai who first noticed that my hand wasn't actually stuck to the glass. He leant over his friendly face beaming and he was like, hey buddy, do you want some glue? <laughs> I hesitated, glue, I don't, I don't need the glue, do I? I don't need the glue. No one's got the main door, he said, you've got to get over there, take some glue and take it. Suddenly there was that familiar feeling again, rising up my body and before I knew it, I had leapt towards the main door, glue on hand, and this time I was well and truly stuck. As the initial chaos had calmed, the action went ahead as planned, and we were able to engage with the attendees of the conference, asking them politely to consider all of our futures as they made their decision that day. It was about 
an hour into the action that my next predicament occurred. I needed a wee. <laughs> I hadn't factored this in beforehand. And as it began to play on my mind, I realized I had two quite clear options. Either I wet myself in front of my newly made activist friends, or I pull my hand off the door, leaving my skin behind. As the anxiety of my predicament began to mount, my hand began to sweat, and suddenly my problem was solved as my fingers became decidedly unstuck. Now I had a new predicament. Do I pull my hand off the door, admitting defeat and letting the action down, or do I pretend still to be stuck and risk wetting myself? I decided on the latter. Um, so there I was with my hand placed against the door, and eventually the police arrived, and an officer who I came to know as PC Cambry was tasked with keeping an eye on me. We talked together about the climate crisis and the reasons we were there, and as the morning wore on, I got so carried away with talking to members of the public that I made my third and final very fatal error. I'd been holding a sign that read Extinction Rebellion, and I was talking to the manager of the hotel. And as I talked to him, I dropped it. And to my complete surprise, the manager cursely bent down, picked up the sign, and handed it back to me. And I was so shocked by this unexpected generosity that I eagerly outstretched both hands to receive it. <laughs> PC Cambry cocked his head, smiled, realizing this was obviously my first time, and took a swift step towards me before placing the cuffs on my wrist. I was swiftly transferred to West End Central Police Station in which I underwent the process of being checked in. It took around a few hours, and as I was there, uh, another man who was being held at the station was escorted out of his cell and taken to the bathroom. He was a big, tall, tall guy, and as he walked across the station, to my surprise, he walked up to me, and he leant on the counter and he said, uh, so what are you in here for then? I looked up at him and I uh, mumbled something about a spot of environmental act activism. And then unsure of what the etiquette was in this situation, I said, how about you? What are you in here for? He took a big sigh and he said, <sighs> got myself in a right old pickle. Attempted murder myself. <laughs> My eyes dropped to the ground. There are many things that go through your mind as you feel the full force of the law descend upon you, and perhaps for others, they are more profound. But for me, there was one simple, resounding question, and it was, how the fuck did I end up here? And so over the next 10 minutes, I'm going to try and do my best to explain that. My journey to becoming a climate activist started technically against my own volition at the age of 14, when my mum would drag my brother and I to protest outside the House of Parliament and Heathrow. My mum ran a group called Climate Action Now, and there was a period of time where there were a lot of colourful characters coming around our house. I particularly remember one evening where she took my brother and I aside and she said, um, boys, mummy may be arrested tonight, but I'll be home in time for breakfast. And that's the kind of woman she was, and so I suppose it was inevitable that we would one day pick up the baton. However, we didn't find our way back to this path until we left school. At the age of 18, I created this YouTube channel, and to our total surprise, it gained some sort of a following. We were very young, very naive, and really keen to make documentaries. And a major turning point for me was when we were approached by the WWF, and they offered us this opportunity to go to Greenland to make a short film about glacial retreat. Now, at the time, I really didn't know much about what was happening in the area, but it seemed like an exciting trip, and so eagerly we agreed. 
And I'll never forget the day we were dropped on the Yak of Southern Glacier, which is one of the fastest retreating in the world. And we stood on the edge of the ice sheet and we watched as huge chunks of ice fell into the ocean beneath at an unprecedented rate. There was nothing more visceral than the sound of these apartment-sized chunks of ice falling off the glacier and breaking into the ocean. And although I'd heard about climate change, I don't think I'd understood it. I don't think I'd felt it until this point. It was clear to see how our planet's rising temperature was dramatically and irrevocably affecting the state of our planet. And it was there on that glacier that I decided I wanted to commit the rest of my life to talking about this issue and raising awareness. And I had an urge to travel to the front lines of climate change to tell the stories of humans who are being affected by this issue, by a seemingly remote issue that affects people all around the world. And so since this time, I've traveled to Somaliland to cover a devastating drought. Here I met uh, climate refugees traveling hundreds and hundreds of miles in search of clean water and food. Uh, after that, I traveled to the remote island nation of Kiribati in the South Pacific, which is under threat from sea level rise. Here I watched as men and women literally rebuilt sea walls in front of me, and I learned of the president's plan to buy land in Fiji in preparation to mass migrate the entire population. Most recently, I traveled to Borneo to witness the effects of forest fires and how they are threatening the livelihoods of the orangutan in this case, our closest primate, which is being pushed to the brink of extinction. These trips have taught me many things. Firstly, that I have most probably single-handedly caused the climate crisis with my carbon emissions, and so I would really need to rethink my career sharpish. Secondly, that climate change is happening. It is here, and it's affecting people all around the world. And thirdly, that climate change isn't really just an environmental issue, but an issue of social justice and human rights, as it's those who have done the least to cause climate change who are suffering the most at the hands of its wrath. And so during this time, I've also done my best to read around the subject. Uh, science really doesn't come naturally to me, and so I've pushed through subscribing to every environmental newsletter I could and reading every well-known book and report on the subject and then reading it five times more to try and understand it. And unfortunately, there really is no good news to be found here. And I think David Wallace-Wells puts it perfectly in the first line of his book, The Uninhabitable Earth, in which he says, it's worse, much worse than you think. And I'm going to talk about some numbers here, and just trust me when I say that if I can understand these, you can definitely understand these, because it easily gets complicated. So the Earth's temperature is currently at 1.1 degrees since pre-industrial levels, right? So since the Industrial Revolution, the temperature of the Earth has risen 1.1 degrees. That means that the Earth right now is currently hotter than it has ever been in all of human history. When you walk around outside, you are walking on a hotter planet than there has ever been. When I was in court earlier this year for my action outside the hotel, we experienced the hottest day ever recorded in the UK. Some of you may have remembered that. It was back in July. And even the judge couldn't help acknowledge the irony as he adjourned early after lunch because it was too hot to focus. The world's leading climate scientists have gathered together in a group called the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and they tell us that the Earth's temperature must not rise any more than 1.5 degrees if we want a habitable future on this planet. That's 0.4 of a degree hotter than it is today. It seems small, but when it comes to the climate, it makes all of the difference. Those same leading experts have told us that we've got just 12 years to radically transform all aspects of society in order to be in line with this. 
Many leading experts tell us today that we're on track for at least two degrees of warming. And even this doesn't factor in feedback loops, such as the melting of the permafrost, which threatens to release tons of methane into the atmosphere, which will lead to runaway climate change and heating way out of our control. But let's just take this number for a moment, two degrees. At two degrees warming, which is our best case scenario at this point, damage from storms and sea level rise will increase 100-fold. 280 million people will be displaced just from sea level rise alone. At two degrees, we'll essentially kick into action the melting of all of the Arctic and Antarctic ice sheets, which slowly, perhaps not in your lifetime, certainly in my lifetime, will lead to 80 meters of sea level rise, which is enough to drown two-thirds of the world's major cities. Alongside the climate crisis, scientists are also telling us that we're in the midst of a sixth mass extinction of life on Earth. Every single day, 150 species of animal and plants go extinct. Despite the fact that this phrase has made its way into the mainstream consciousness, what most of us fail to realize is that we are on that list. There is no us without all of the insects and the animals that make up the complicated web of life on Earth. I could go on, but I think you get the idea. Climate change is here, it's happening, it's a crisis. There is no stopping climate change at this point, but how bad it gets, how bad this crisis becomes, depends entirely on our actions today and from this day forward. So what should we do with this information? Well, I was asking myself the same question a year ago. I was making a short film about air pollution in London, feeling a little bit depressed about everything I was learning, and I read about this man called Roger Hallam. Roger was studying a, a, a PhD at the time in uh, civil resistance, uh, studying social movements at King's College London. And he was testing out some of what he was learning by blocking roads in London with four or five people to protest around illegal levels of air pollution. So I went down to one of these actions to film Roger, and honestly, it was really quite tragic. It was a group of retirees, four or five of them, stepping into roads for five minutes at a time and inevitably being shouted at by angry drivers. So I sat Roger down after to interview him, and I said, Roger, what are you hoping to achieve with all of this? And he said, Jack, I've got this great idea. I am going to have thousands of people taking to the streets in London, shutting down the roads to protest around climate change. And I was like, Roger, that sounds like a great idea. Good luck with that. Yeah, good luck. Keep me up to date on that. And off I went. And I guess that was my mistake, because a few months later, Roger created an organization with a few friends, and he called it Extinction Rebellion. Initially, they were so desperate for help that the most high-profile people they could find to deliver the Declaration of Rebellion to Theresa May was myself and my brother. And so on a grey day in London, five of us went outside Downing Street and we were like, we're declaring a rebellion against the government, so just wanted to let you know that. Obviously, no one took any notice, and in fact, we were moved to the side of the road so that a van delivering premium meats could make its way to Downing Street. Sometimes you just have to laugh at the irony. But since then, something truly amazing has happened. The movement has captured the public imagination. Our first action saw 100 people sat down in the road outside the House of Parliament for 10 minutes. It was a small thing, but it was significant because it meant we knew this could work. It meant we knew people would turn up. The next action saw a few hundred people sit down on five bridges for just one day. Between January and March of this year, 
We carried out a few actions, such as my one at the hotel, proving that everyday citizens were prepared to be arrested for this cause. And then in April of this year, we carried out our first major rebellion, which saw thousands of people taking to the streets, just like Roger had said, and engaging in what became the largest act of mass civil resistance in UK history. And I don't know if anyone came down on those two weeks, but I almost think rebellion is the wrong word because it was a joyous two weeks in which people came out to celebrate life, to celebrate community, and to talk about these issues. Amazingly, it worked. Two weeks later, the UK government declared a climate and ecological emergency, although what this actually means in terms of practical action is yet to be seen. And here we are today, this week, on the second day of what we're calling the International Rebellion. Right now, as we sit in this room, thousands and thousands of people are sat in the streets in Westminster, blocking every major road in and out of the city across 12 major sites. You may have read in the press that Boris Johnson is calling us crusties. The people that I know inside this movement are lawyers, academics, teachers, parents, concerned citizens, people who I look up to and admire. And if those are crusties, I am proud to be a crusty. The movement is spread across these six sites, and each site is run by a multitude of different interfaith groups, longtime uh, peace activists. Scotland have a site, Wales have a site, a group have marched up from the southwest, and they've taken a site. And the entire thing is being run by volunteers who are cooking food and giving talks and managing the solar panels and, of course, willing to be arrested. These are everyday people sacrificing their liberties in extraordinary times. And I often wonder what puts people off getting involved in a movement like this. And I think there are a few things which means that we have a lot of work to do as a movement. One of the major things, I think, is a really natural fear of hypocrisy. We are all complicit in this system. We all live these carbon-intensive lifestyles, and it feels somewhat hypocritical to come out and speak against it. But in order to try and make change, we have to move beyond this. We have to move beyond finger-pointing and shame and come together to unite behind the science and demand radical climate action that reflects the level of the crisis that we're in. The other thing that I think puts people off, again, is an equally valid fear of arrest. Arrest isn't fun. It isn't glamorous. Tomorrow I'll stand in court to receive the final verdict for my action outside the hotel. And even the charges placed against me have had a significant impact on my life. I've lost jobs as a result. We also have to acknowledge that arrest affects different demographics differently, right? Structural racism and prejudice definitely exist within the police force and the legal system. For me, it feels really important to acknowledge my own privilege. For me, it feels important to use that. It feels like a responsibility to stand up for others who may not have the same responsibilities to do so. I'm being given the time signs, so let me finish with one final thing. There's an amazing woman called Erica Chenoweth, and she did a great talk on why civil resistance works. And in it, she said this. It takes just 3.5% of a population to create meaningful social change and to tip the scales. There are 66 million people in the UK. That means we need just over 2 million people to stand up and be counted. I'm told there are over 500 people in the room tonight. So what I'm asking, if you take one thing away from this talk, is for you to be counted. 
in whatever way you can, and whatever works for you, whether it's being arrested, whether it's cooking food, running the solar panels, or holding a placard. Because whilst myself and many people of my generation have had to accept that we may never be able to bring children into this world, many of the people in this room do have kids, and they are relying on you to act. Thank you.